podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. At cricket headquarters, hallowed lords, the might of England crumbles against 11 tough New Zealanders. Opener Len Hutton is never at ease against the determined attack of wiry Harry Cave and his teammates. Runs come slowly, and England are very much on the defensive. When John R. Reid died, I found a story written by a New Zealander who bowled to Reid in the nets before a series once. The boy was young and slow, in his early teens, and he wouldn't have given Reid the kind of practice that he needed, and the nets were not even turf, not even matting, but concrete. Anyone who's grown up with concrete nets knows what they do to a cricket ball. They savage it, a chunk at a time, taking a good quality pill and turning it into this sort of bloated, soft mess. They don't swing, they spin, but slowly, and the bounce is usually knee-high. And after a while, they start to open up at the seams. No international player, especially your team's gun all-round legend, should be warming up for a test series against a kid on a concrete pitch with broken-down balls. John Reed was a special player in a poor environment. While the other great all-rounders of his era, like Garfield Sobers, travelled the world playing cricket for money, Reed worked in a service station. New Zealand hadn't yet developed into the cricket culture of today, and because of that, on the field, they were quite often terrible. And Reed knew his team wasn't any good, because he was good, and he had eyes. In the 58 tests he played for New Zealand, they won three. And that was without him ever playing one against one of the best teams, Australia. You want more? Fine. New Zealand scored at 2.02 runs and over during his career, and they averaged 21 with a bat. And in those tests, New Zealand players scored 20 test centuries. England scored 1800s against New Zealand in the 19 tests they played against them. And Reed's career finished before they had ever won a series. And that feat alone took them 39 years. This means that for the longest time, New Zealand weren't playing for wins. They were merely playing for respect. Welcome to Double Century the podcast on the history of cricket. This is Series 3, and in this season we'll be looking at the times when cricket nations had their first big win over England. Episode 5 is New Zealand's turn, but we're going to change it up a little here, because this isn't a win. We're going to focus on a series that New Zealand didn't win a game, but then again, neither did England. Before arriving in England for the 1949 tour, New Zealand had played 16 test matches. But at that time, not all of them were even classed as test matches. When Australia bowled New Zealand out twice without New Zealand actually making 100 runs in the match, it was only called a test two years later. Of the first 108 tests that New Zealand played, only one was against Australia. They were toured largely because teams were already heading to Australia. This was an amateur team coming off the World War, and they'd been embarrassed regularly when they played. Rain and plucky draws were their best results. In 1933, England's Wally Hammond made 563 runs in two innings against them. But this wasn't the same England. Their team had been severely affected by World War II. And since cricket restarted, they had lost twice to Australia and lost many of their best players. But the 1949 tour was very important for New Zealand, as Australia was ignoring them and the other nations were still developing themselves. For New Zealand, playing against England really mattered. And in those days, England only allowed them three-day tests because they didn't think that New Zealand were good enough. In 1930, England played two tests on the same day, one in New Zealand and another one in the West Indies. What New Zealand wanted was respect and proper matches. And it wasn't like they weren't producing talent. 
But even when they found one incredible talent, Stewie Dempster, who in 10 tests averaged 65, what happened? He moved to England to play county cricket. And because New Zealand don't have the same size of talent pool that other nations do, it meant that something truly remarkable almost happened before the 1949 series. They almost chose I.L. Bula, a Fijian batting sensation. With the score 162 for 6, chasing 335, Ilikina Lasarusa Telefis... I really... I can't pronounce his name. It's an incredible name, but you should look it up. I'll put it in the show notes. But I can tell you what his name literally means. It stands for Returned Alive from Nankula Hospital at Lakiba Island in the Lao Group, but it was shortened to I.L. Bula. So in that chase against Canterbury, he scored 120 off 140 balls to almost give Fiji the victory. Walter Hadley, an accountant, Kiwi captain, and father of Richard, wanted to take him to England. But because he was not a New Zealand citizen, other players on the squad didn't want him to travel. But also, Bueller didn't want to travel, so he wasn't selected. As you would expect at that time, New Zealand cricket was very pragmatic. And their plan was not to win in England, but to draw. To draw every test. The series. It was, after all, only 12 days of cricket. Only a handful more than the famed timeless test. To do this, they picked what they believed to be their best batting lineup. England batted first at Leeds on a solid batting wicket. But despite hundreds by Len Hutton and Dennis Compton, they never truly got away from New Zealand. Bill Edrich shows what is needed with a fine boundary, but the Middlesex man doesn't stay long. A Cowie Express flies off his glove and the catch is held. Exit Edrich. Part of that was down to Jack Cowie, a quality opening bowler who, due to bad luck, only ever played nine tests. He had his debut in England for 1937, lost many years through the war, and by the time he was back in 1949, he was playing his last series. But in 1937, on that tour, he took 114 wickets at 19.95. He was clearly New Zealand's best chance to get wickets, and he took five. But to get them, he had to deliver 36 overs on day one. Sadly, he got a muscle strain, and he wouldn't be able to bowl in the second innings. England made it to 372, but they scored them at under three runs and over. Not a problem in a normal test, but it took more than a day to do it, and this was a three-day game. That didn't look like it would matter when New Zealand fell to 80 for four early on. In a three-day match, the follow-on is 150 behind, meaning that they needed to pass 223. That is when Bron Smith came into bat with Martin Donnelly. Smith was an attacking batter. Not exactly what was needed for New Zealand to draw this series. Smith was slashing the ball through the cordon, and at one stage apparently turned to their slips and told them that they should get ready for a chance soon. But that chance didn't come. He ended up falling just four short of his 100, and he scored it in 108 minutes. But New Zealand had passed the follow-on. At 284 for nine, it seemed like England would get a big lead. But Jack Cowie came into bat with keeper Frank Mooney. Cowie had a runner after his bowling injury, but they put on 57 runs in 60 minutes. Some on day two, and the rest of those on day three. England went from dreaming of enforcing the follow-on to having a lead of only 31. It meant that at the start of the final day of this test, they had to continue to bowl and then also build a lead virtually from scratch. But with Jack Cowie unable to bowl, England smashed the three remaining bowlers around on the back of a Cyril Washbrook 100. It is worth stopping here for just a moment too. The three men that made hundreds against New Zealand, Washbrook, Hutton and Compton, would make a combined total of 113,183 first-class runs. Remember that before this series, the New Zealanders almost picked a Fijian who played nine first-class matches in his life. And it wasn't just the batters that England had. The bowling attack had Alec Bedser, who was an incredible cutter bowler, Eric Hollies, the man who's wrong and deceived Don Bradman, and Trevor Bailey, an incredible all-rounder. They had over 6,000 first-class wickets between them. 
and Bailey took six wickets in the first innings. For the tourist openers, Bert Sutcliffe and Verdar Scott treat the English bowlers, including Bailey, with ease and go all out on the attack. Left-hander Sutcliffe, hailed in New Zealand as one of the great, lives up to his reputation after weeks of form and with a glorious hit off Derby's Cliff Gladwin, reaches his half-century in 65 minutes. New Zealand was set 299 runs in two and a half hours, and they went for it. And luckily for them, they had just the man to do that. Years later, Bert Sutcliffe would be a legend for what he achieved in one innings against South Africa. But before he became the face of New Zealand bravery, he was a tall, blonde batter with a quality that had almost never been seen in New Zealand before. He was a master player. But while England was hoping for a quick win, they were whacked around by Sutcliffe, who scored 82. But while their scoring rate was quick, they still fell behind, and eventually they went for the draw, ending up at the close 195 for two. It was a draw, but they certainly weren't holding on for it. One down, three to go. England batted first in the second test at Lords, but while they actively tried to score quicker in this innings, the quality of New Zealand's bowling and fielding kept them at bay. Cowie actually had them 112 for five, but that is when Dennis Compton and Trevor Bailey got together. They would be the only two players to make over 26 runs for England, but it was enough for them to declare on 313 before stumps and have a bowl at New Zealand. With three tourists out, England still stand a good chance. But another left-hander, Martin Donnelly, kills all hopes. The intense heat makes the fielding grow lax, and as a match, it's all over. The only man who stands out is old Oxford Blue Donnelly, who hooks and drives all round the wicket to set up the highest individual score in New Zealand versus England test matches. Last year, he played for Warwickshire, and this season, his world-class batting has helped the New Zealanders to their all-time record of only one defeat in England. Oddly, the laws in cricket at that point meant you were not actually allowed to declare on day one, but New Zealand didn't seem to mind, and at close, both openers were not out. The following day, Sutcliffe made another 50 in an opening partnership of 89. But this was Martin Donnelly's day. Sutcliffe caught the attention of the eye, but many thought Donnelly was just as good. A brilliant backfield player who, again like Cowie, had made his debut in 1937, meaning his best years were when the world was at war, and he would only manage seven tests, averaging 53 in them. His first class average was 47. But in this one match, he left quite an impact. He smashed pulls and cuts and made a chanceless 206. At that point, it was the highest score by a New Zealander. In that innings, it was Sutcliffe's 57, which was the second top score. Donnelly batted on with the tail, adding 163 for the 7th and 8th wickets combined. I think it says a lot in the different styles of the two players that many people were still cooing about Sutcliffe's innings while Donnelly played an innings that not only made history, but gave New Zealand a chance of victory over England. Sadly, the chance of victory didn't last long. England openers came out and made a partnership of 143 between Hutton and Jack Robinson. And while New Zealand eventually took some wickets, England cruised to the draw at 306 for five. This might have felt like a failure for most teams, but to New Zealand, this meant that after two tests, they weren't even close to a loss against England. All honours in this second test go to Martin Donnelly, whose dynamic double century buried the match, but showed the Lord's crowd batsmanship at its best. They had held firm in the first game with a chance of winning, and they were ahead of the game in the second test. And I am aware that I am not talking about New Zealand's first ever win over England, and that many of you might feel a bit icky with draws. So let me just quickly tell you about some great wins that New Zealand had over England. In 1978, a year before England would defeat the West Indies, they took on England at the Basin in Wellington. It was their 48th test against England in 48 years. 
After the first innings, they had a lead of 13 runs. And what they needed was one decent score, and they could put a lot of pressure on England. But the opposition bowling attack was incredible. It had five men, and it included Bob Willis, Mike Hendrick, and Ian Botham. They rolled New Zealand for 123, meaning their bowlers had to defend a 137-run lead. The two opening bowlers went unchanged for 26 overs. One of the best early left-arm seamers in the game, Richard Kalinch, took three top-order wickets. And then Richard Hadley took six more. England made it to 64. And 64 was quite an important score because England not making it to 100 runs was the kind of thing that would happen to New Zealand for much of that first 48 years. It was quite an emotional win. Again, a stand. He's gone. Taken by... Stumps are going right, left and centre. The crowd are telling it for you. An absolute bedlam here at the Basin Reserve. And it was, of course, on the back of Richard Hadley that New Zealand won their first tour to England as well. Things had changed quite a lot by then, though. In 1978, New Zealand had still only won one test series. By 1986, they were unarguably the third best test team in the world. England were on a decline that would last almost two decades. But it didn't feel that way, and England was still arrogant enough for Graeme Gooch to basically say, it's like the World Eleven at one end and the Ilford Second Eleven at the other. The World Eleven was Richard Hadley, who was the first New Zealand cricketer to be the best in the world. And it was an incredible period in world cricket. And yet Hadley would have walked into every single team, including the West Indies. He was 35 by then, but in English conditions, he was just unplayable. And by that stage, not only was he a New Zealand star, but a Nottinghamshire legend. He actually played for Nottinghamshire when he wasn't playing for New Zealand, and he took 57 wickets at 14. He added another 19 wickets at 20 in the tests. The rest of the New Zealand bowlers did struggle, but their batters stood up as well, and they took the series 1-0. But the Daily Mirror saw Hadley's role in this way. They said he was not so much an all-rounder, but an entire cricket team. The rest of the team had Ilford's second 11 shirts made up, but it didn't matter. They won a series in England. A wonderful performance by New Zealand gave them an eight-wicket win over England at Trent Bridge in 1986. Richard Hadley took ten wickets in a magnificent display of pace bowling, and it was New Zealand's second win in 33 test matches in England. And that's got to be out. The goose didn't even turn. Beautifully bowled by Hadley. But back to our 1949 team, or the 49ers as they are known. New Zealand made a huge selection call for the third test. They replaced Bron Smith, who had been the star of the first test, with a 21-year-old player called John R. Reid. At 82 for four, he came into bat. On that tour, Reid was chosen as a wicketkeeper. And by the end of his career, he was a quality all-rounder who could spin the ball. But also, at times, he bowled medium pace. He batted everywhere from number three to number six. Because if there was a hole in the order, he stepped up. Looking at his numbers, he would have been a very good number six for a quality team, but that wasn't an option. He batted second drop for a team with historically bad openers in a country which is one of the hardest to open in the world, meaning that instead of coming in at six when his team had a few runs on the board to unleash those powerful drives of his, he was in early on a seamer and hoping for the best. Then there's his bowling. Reed could bowl seam or spin, but it's his spin that was the most interesting, as it was underused. Reid bowled in the fourth innings of test matches 11 times in 58 tests. In his entire career, he bowled 7,725 deliveries. Only 21% of them were in the second team innings. But this is where his remarkable career actually began. Under pressure against England, he struck 50 in a big partnership with Donnelly, and New Zealand survived the day, ending up with a very slow 293. England found some great form with the bat, 
but New Zealand never let them score too quick. Their left-arm finger spinner, Tom Burt, took six wickets. But England still got on top, and early on day three, they declared on 440, with a 147-run lead and almost a whole day to bowl. New Zealand fell to 109 for three when Sutcliffe and Donnelly came together. Donnelly was dour, but Sutcliffe was, well, divine. Attacking England and not only keeping out the wickets, but ensuring that New Zealand still had a lead that they were adding to with ease. He brought up his 100 in 160 minutes while England were trying to get the win. An incredible effort. And because of it and Donnelly's 80, they had a 200-run lead at the close with three wickets in hand. They had now drawn their third test. They had one to go. I think it's important to know that England did not want to lose this series. Often they didn't pick their best 11s against the developing nations. But now they are a chance of losing the series, so they brought in an extra bowler for the final match. New Zealand's captain, Walter Hadley, did something even funkier. He made John Reid wicketkeep. Hadley would be one of the first in an incredible long line of very intelligent New Zealand captains. Perhaps they had to be that smart because they had a smaller talent pool than other countries. But he had already worked hard to make the team as fit as they could be, which was not that common at the time. And he found interesting ways to use his bowlers, and he loved making a big speech off the field. But perhaps it was his relationship with Sutcliffe that was the most important. Throughout his life, Sutcliffe would always be haunted by the short ball. But in England, his problem was that he couldn't stop hooking. Hadley made his bowlers bounce Sutcliffe in the nets and only let Sutcliffe hook or pull if the ball went straight to the mid-wicket. On that tour, Sutcliffe scored 2,627 runs for the entire summer at an average of 60, 423 of those in the tests. And that was after a terrible start where he only made 331 runs in his first 14 first-class innings. And in the fourth test, he started with a strong 88. No one else went beyond 60. But New Zealand made 345 runs, and maybe just as importantly, they batted into the second day again. In response, England were in no mood to stuff around. They were at one stage 365 for two. Hutton made 206 in five hours. Edridge added 100, while England scored 482 runs over four runs and over. New Zealand's bowling attack had been holding on all tour, but they happened to arrive in England for a very dry summer. It helped their batters score, but it meant that they had to reuse the same bowlers over and over again, and by the end they were just overused. This meant that England had a 137-run lead and most of day three to roll New Zealand. But New Zealand had Bert Sutcliffe, and again he stood up, scoring another 50 as the top order stuttered around him. But when Sutcliffe and Donnelly were dismissed, New Zealand was still a few runs behind and they were under a lot of pressure. That's when John Reid came in. As the pitch started to crumble and facing two all-time great bowlers in Alec Bedser and Jim Laker, Reid defended when he had to and then attacked the loose balls ensuring that they had a lead. He would eventually be out for 93, but it didn't matter because New Zealand cricket had changed everything with that innings by just not losing. New Zealand played 32 first-class matches on that tour, winning 13, drawing 18 and losing only to Oxford. Walter Hadley was still furious at that years later. Four three-day tests, all drawn, from the guys in New Zealand cricket who are known as the 49ers. Oh, and on that three-day test thing, that didn't change after this series. It actually happened during it. After two tests, the MCC asked if New Zealand wanted an extra day added on to the final matches. But they said no, as they had already booked all their games in. It took two tests for New Zealand to change how England saw them. Neville Cardis once referred to John Reid as a club cricket in Excelsis. But at that time, that is what New Zealand were. Club cricketers playing tests. An incredibly talented Ilford second eleven, if you will. Not because they didn't have the talent, but because they didn't have the system to support it. As Reid once said, I used to tell some terrible lies. How are we going to win this one and win that one, knowing damn well that we wouldn't? 
Bert Sutcliffe never played in a winning New Zealand side. Walter Hadley had to lead a team that couldn't make 100 runs in a test. They were embarrassed again and again. And their big early victory was a bunch of three-day draws. But look what they built. Just a couple of months back, this small island where cricket isn't the biggest sport went on to be number one in the world in test cricket. Smith, Burke, Kalingi, Donnelly, Howie, Sutcliffe, Reid, and the first Hadley. They all built that. Think of all those New Zealand innings that you've seen where one player has fought through against better bowlers on a pitch not helping them, using their own method, sticking to the crease any way they can, through lunch, tea, and beyond stumps, making 100 against all the odds. That is what New Zealand cricket has been doing for 90 years. They have battled through their history, and now New Zealand has gone from club cricketers in concrete nets to number one in the world. This is for the early heroes like Reed and Donnelly and Sutcliffe, but maybe more for all those kids in the concrete nets. New Zealand once dreamt of drawing. Look at them now. Whips that one away and how appropriate that Ross Taylor and Kane Williamson are there for this moment, for this team. It's a story that's akin to David versus Goliath, but Kane Williamson and his team now world test champions and living proof that sometimes... Just sometimes, nice guys do finish first. Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast was made entirely possible by our supporters at Patreon. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to support us into the future. This show was written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. It was co-written by Max Wiggins, who also did the original research. Additional research and fact-checking was by Abhishek Mukherjee. And our producer is Nick McCorriston. Thank you so much for listening. But if you do like this show, one of the best ways that you can help support us is just simply by sharing it on social media or rating and reviewing it in your favorite podcast apps. If you like my work and want to follow it more, there is a link in the show notes to Linktree, which will show you where I do, I don't know, TikToks and Instagrams and YouTube and Twitter and other podcasts. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Duplessis is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.